Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by the Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once-a-month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the impact collaborative. Again, that's info at real hyphen leaders.com. Enjoy the show. And welcome, good people, back to the Real Leaders podcast with the wise and wonderful Simon Mainwaring. Simon, thanks for being with you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good to see you, Kevin. Great to see you too. And we're back at it. And things, a lot of things have happened in the past time, in the past couple of months, Simon. Tell us about the upcoming book. I think that's kind of what we want to talk about today. Give the viewers and the audience uh, a little bit of insight of what you've been working on and how it can help them. Sure. Thanks for asking. And, you know, the re- here's what I've been struggling with, not just the last couple of months, but the last three or four years. I don't think we're getting far enough fast enough in terms of the way that business is showing up to solve all these challenges we face that we see every day in the news press. Greece is on fire. You know, there's floods in Europe and you know, heat waves in the Northwestern states and the US and so many other challenges that we see. And here's what I'm worried about. There's a lot of good things going on in business, but if you extrapolate from those good things and pull a line forward, you know, it's encouraging to see more good being done by more companies. But at the same time, the timelines we're working against, biodiversity, climate emergency, ocean acidification, and all the social inequities inequities we know, are contracting towards us. And at some point they're gonna meet and we're gonna go, oh my God, we're in trouble and it's too late. Mm. And I don't want that to happen. So how do we do more faster? And so I've spent the last three years writing this book, it's called Lead With We, and you can now get it up on pre-order on Amazon, Lead With We. And it really looks at how we scale and accelerate our response to these crises and in so doing drive business growth. Mm. And you know, why is this important? You've got to ask yourself, are we in trouble? I think we'd all agree we're in trouble. Whatever, whatever lens you're looking at, wherever you are in life, are the solutions we're providing right now enough? No, I don't think they are. Otherwise we would have solved for it. And who's the most likely candidate to fix this stuff? I would argue that given how sort of gridlocked and you know, bipartisan and so on, 
you know, government can be, and there's a lot of conflict there, and there's the limits on philanthropy and nonprofits and NGOs, everyone increasingly is looking to business. And what is business doing wrong? Because business has been doing a lot of good, but why isn't it getting there fast enough? The reason is, is that we're still torn between being self-serving and working together to solve for these issues. And so the whole book, the book, the whole thesis of the book is this idea of leading with we, which is how do we re-engineer, reimagine capitalism so that we live and work together in new ways that restore and protect the living systems and the social systems on which business, our lives depend and why. Brands can't survive in societies that fail. And so we're really putting ourselves out of business right now. And so Lead With We really examines how we have this new mindset and it pulls it all the way through business so you can act against it. It's a really actionable plan so that you can drive business growth, but also solve for these issues. And that is, that's what keeps me up at night. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning. That's what gets me all excited all the time and drives my team crazy because I'm always excited about it. So yeah, that's what it's all about. And we believe it too. You know, we have the impact collaborative, which you're a member of, and you know, we had the same belief. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with a group. And your book does a really good job of articulating that, uh, you know, especially in the first chapter, start with yourself, start with me, help our audience understand what you mean by that. Well, I want to talk about that because Here's the big challenge with business as it's currently practiced. You know, there's a lot of talk about stakeholder capitalism, which is great. It really just means that we're looking beyond just our, our responsibility to our shareholders, fiduciary duty to our shareholders, to everyone who touches our brand and also including the, the planet, you know, so that we're all stakeholders. But my problem with it is this. Too often people are talking about sharing in the rewards, but they're not sharing the responsibilities. And let's think about it for a second. Not academic lofty stuff, just brass tacks. We're in this mess because of what I do, Simon, when I buy a certain product that has plastic. We're in this mess because company muckety-muck CEO does something else and enables Mm -hmm. behaviors that poison the planet or compromises their employee base. Basically, the mess that we're in is an aggregate of all of these little individual actions that have been compounding invisibly out of sight, out of reach for so long. And so the connectivity between all of these small acts have been working against us. And now we're finally at that moment where we go, oh my God, we can see the net result, the cumulative impact of that action. But the good news is this, that same connectivity can be used to our advantage. If you do the right thing, you do the right thing, if we all share the responsibilities. So part of the thesis of Lead With We is really that all of us have agency in our life to change things. And yes, we can buy more conscious products, but it goes beyond that. Like, who do we buy from? What companies do we invest in? Who do we work for? And how do we make sure that we're contributing to the solution you know, as an aggregate? <clears throat> and so all of that is to say that we've got to make the choice to lead because you know, right now, a lot of people, and for a long, long, you know, big part of my life, you look at it and go, well, the problem's down the road. It's not today. I know it's bad, and I see all the news hide the headlines, but, it, you know, it's something later on. Or that's not our job to fix it. That's what government does, right? Mm. You know, or, you know, someone else is going to ride in on a white horse and save this at the end of the day. There's going to be some do-good person who's going to save the day, right? But the, rea- the reality is this. 
every single day, every single one of us by our choices are creating the problem. And when we adopt a lead with we mindset and we really re-engineer business around that, we can suddenly start to unlock the same compounding effect to our benefit. And so this first stage of what I call the virtuous, uh, virtuous spiral as opposed to virtuous cycle is the, the decision by you that you are who we are waiting for, that each one of us have to make conscious choices every day and that we've got to choose to lead with we. Mm. And I want to set the stage for a lot of the new listeners listening to this program. You know, once a month we have Simon on. Simon's the CEO and founder of We First. And he helps some of the greatest, if not the greatest, purpose-driven brands in the world really help unlock their brand, their purpose, their mission, and have that manifest throughout what he just mentioned, those stakeholders. And so he's speaking with experience here and has put a lot of time into articulating what the future of leadership needs to look like and how you can position your company to tackle some of the greatest challenges of our time. So setting the stage here, now people that are listening, they cannot see this virtuous spiral that is in front of them, that we could put in front of them if, if, we, uh, if we're on top of our stuff, if we're on top of our game here today. But the virtuous spiral has five key components to it, six key components to it. I'm gonna start at the bottom real quick and go to the top. We just talked about me. Me is talking about reimagining leadership, what you just explained. The next stage is leaders defining the company, the purpose and the goals, re-engineering your company culture. Yeah. Then that you have the company there. You activate the purpose and align internal stakeholders, building community architecture through effective, uh, through effective moments. And then you have uh, the community, mo mobilize brand communities, build movements, leading societal conversations next with society collaborate cross-sector and shape culture. And all of this comes into a trans transcendent alliances that create meaningful and measurable changes. So before I ask you the next question, Simon, anything you wanna add on to that to help our listeners and bring them into this yeah. conversation? About what I really appreciate the background and I wanna share kind of what led me to this sort of vision and then explain it in uh, add to what you shared. You know, I was lucky enough to be an ad guy working in Australia, London, and all over the US for a number of years. And you get to experience viscerally the power of storytelling, how you can actually share a narrative that engages people and made, motivates them to behave and think a certain way. Mm. And I got to work on Nike for years and work on projects like the Olympics and the World Cup and those sorts of things. And that gives you a real experience of that. And then worked on, I was a worldwide creative director for Motorola, launching things like the, the, the Razor phone, and you get to get that experience as well. And so I came away from all of that. I didn't care about the world at that time. I was just an ad guy, whatever. And I came away from that going, wow, there's real impact that you can have at scale when you do things right from sharing a story. In 2008, there was a global economic meltdown, and I wrote my first book called We First, which was really a response to that. We need to use social media to that end, to, have to, to, to do good. But really what we're talking about here with this virtuous spiral is how do we really inspire everyone to build a movement like you've seen brands like Nike doing, like you've seen with big product launches around the world? How do you inspire a movement that's really going to save our future? Because I have kids. I have a 21 and 18-year-old daughter or 19-year-old tomorrow um, daughter. And, you know, I really worry for their future. And I really worry during this pandemic about 
my friends and our safety and we can't go on the holidays we wanted to used to do and, and the planet is suffering and there are people all around the world who are just in terrible situations and everyone's life is being affected now. And so the idea is this, I think there's a chance that we can fix this in time. And here's why. Never before have we had three things coexisting that I think are necessary for it to work because it hasn't worked in the past. Why is it going to work now? Number one, we have the stakes. Like literally we are facing an existential crisis right now where the planet is in peril. You know, there's a disparity of wealth around the world. Social inequity as the Black Lives Matter movement exposed and, you know, there's being addressed to some degree and long overdue. You know, we hear about the natural world, our oceans. Every day we're like, oh, my God, we're in trouble. So the stakes are sufficiently high. Secondly, we have the stakeholders. And that means for a long time we've had conscious consumers and do-gooders out there with social enterprises, and I'd include myself in that. But now we have suppliers, leaders, customers, consumers, employees, but most importantly, the investor class. Institutional investors like pension funds, and retail investors. Why is this important? Because you can't offer a new version of capitalism or business when only half the people are participating. Half of them do good and the other half undoes it. The other half does good and the other half undoes it. But now that we have everyone at the table because we're all paying attention because of the trouble we're in, we can actually for the first time offer a viable alternative. So we have the stakes and we have the stakeholders. But the last piece that I'm so preoccupied with and what the book is about is the story. If you look at historically at the moonshot with JFK or Martin Luther King Jr. with I Have a Dream or even Gandhi with Peaceful Resistance, large shifts in culture are driven by a narrative that people can kind of understand wherever they are in the world, whatever role they're playing, and to really kind of lean into that as a new way of showing up, you know, thinking and behavior. And so I'm hoping that the stakes, the stakeholders, and the story, the new narrative of business, which is being examined at the World Economic Forum, to the Business Roundtable, to B Corp, to every CEO out there, when these three come together, we have a, a real chance at re-engineering business to leverage the connectivity of issues to our advantage rather than our detriment, you know, regenerate rather than degenerate. And so the virtuous spiral that you just walked us through is a vision for how we do that. And we have the individual level there at the bottom that I talked about where we actually individually choose to lead in our own capacity, consumer, whatever hat we're wearing. Then you have the CEO that is defining the purpose and values of a corporation. Then you actually have community architecture, which is reaching out through your company to your brand community and mobilizing them to drive a change that's in alignment with your purpose. And then above that, you have business at large and companies within industries driving societal conversations. And you see that with women's empowerment, gun control, climate, every day out there in the press. And then when you combine all of those, we have the promise of the higher order state that we can work towards, which is really what I call transcendence, where really we're serving something larger than ourselves, not just individually through those levels, but collectively as a whole. And if you want to know that's possible, firstly, look to nature, you know, the codependencies and the mutualities inside the natural world that makes the whole thing thrive. But also look to the pandemic in the last year. You know, for one of the few times in history, we are facing a challenge larger than ourselves. And what happened? People did the unimaginable things. You know, the world's largest automakers re-engineered their supply chains to make ventilators and PPE equipment. 
Companies stop what they're doing and put their sent everyone home and took care of them. Local restaurants are making meals for first, you know, medical practitioners and first responders. In a moment of crisis like this, we come together in ways that are unimaginable. So all of that is to say that we had this confluence of stakes, stakeholders, and story. And if we leverage what I call a virtuous spiral, which I unpack in my book, you know, as opposed to a virtuous cycle, which people may have heard about, then we can really re-engineer business to provide solutions at scale faster, which is what we all need for our future. And each chapter of this book are big topics. So I'd, I'd be naive to say we're going to be able to cover everything in this one episode. Um, but let's let's start with oh, Simon. Are you here, Simon? In this uh, interlude in our conversation, we can all imagine what Kevin's doing while he's trying to read. He might be doing an outfit thing. He might be exploring new topics, but suddenly he's back. Or he just like he, that. He this might is a new white shirt. You just went and changed your shirt. That's what I think happened. He, he might have a mouse that just glitched and decided to <laughs> kick him off. Um, but, but I'd say, you know, I'd, I'd be naive to say we're going to be able to cover all of these steps in this episode. That's why I think it's important to actually go through the book and understand it yourself. But is there anything else you want to add on to the first stage of the, the virus spiral, spiral that, you, that you have not said yet before we go on to the next uh, section, which is re-engineering? Absolutely. And for those who want to know more about you know, the book, I'll just put it in the chat there and you can see some details to where you can pre-order and so on, just to save people wondering where it might be. But you know, in terms of you know, the first stage, I think this is sort of points back to my, what my first book was about, which was really the shift from me first to we first. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, consciously or unconsciously, business at large and by extension, society and all stakeholders, no matter what hat you're wearing, for many decades, and we saw this with greed is good in the 90s and 80s and so on, it was really about how much money you can make profit for profit's sake, fiduciary duty to shareholders and so on. And that was based on the premise of, you know, the companies didn't, weren't really responsible for the impact they had beyond their own walls on the environment and so on, negative externalities that they're called. That they're called. Um, and also that we had this potential for exponential growth, that the planet can support growth exponentially for business more broadly and individual companies. That has been true, proved to be false. And we see all the evidence around us with loss of biodiversity and you know, the warming of the oceans and lots of different things going on. All of that is to say, that that shifts our mindset from, wait a second, if I just take care of me, everything's gonna be all right, to actually I'm connected to everybody else and all of us as a human family are connected to the natural world and we've gotta be mindful of the consequences of that old mindset. So when we talk about that first stage, which is really assuming that you're gonna go from a me first mindset to leading on behalf of the collective, it's a shift from me first to we first. And why is this so important? As I said, you know, brands can't survive in societies that fail. That's the bottom line. There's no middle class to buy your products. There's no society or infrastructure on which allows us to thrive. And in addition, you know, when you really think about why it's so important right now is that the market forces are rewarding companies that are clearly, transparently, and accountably doing good. And so this is not just about doing good in a vacuum. This is about driving growth on the strength of the market forces that are out there today. Investors that want to invest in companies, 
that are really satisfying consumer desire for a greater impact out there in the world. And together, we all, all of our stakeholders are making a difference. And so, you know, we, if you're listening to this, I just want you to ask yourself one question. We can either look after the parts, you can look after you, I can look after me, we can look after our company and damn the consequences and continue to see the whole fall apart, or we can walk, work towards shoring up the whole, whether it's the natural ecosystems or the social ecosystems through our work as business leaders and employees and entrepreneurs and so on. And because the whole is well, the parts can thrive. And that's really the fundamental decision we need to make on an individual level. No one's going to fix it for us. We can't continue what we're doing based on the results we're seeing today. So we've got to show up differently. Uh, very well said. I'm not going to attempt to expand on that. That was so beautifully put. One of the things that jumps to my mind is a quote. And when we're thinking about our own purpose, changing our perspectives to understand why we're here on this earth, two quotes come to mind. The first that is, well, what is, um, what is good? We got to ask today and a few questions from some of our CEOs. What does it mean to be a business as a force for good? Good. Sure. What's bad? How can you be bad? What is, is business bad? Good, I think, is when you increase and maximize happiness and you do everything you can to also decrease suffering. Right. So, so that is what good is to me. Now, when we're thinking about changing our new perspective, a quote from Pablo Picasso came in. I just wrote this down so I wouldn't butcher it. And that is, the meaning in life is to find your purpose. Right. The purpose in life is to give it away. Right. So once you found your purpose, how do you as a business leader give it away to employees in your organization, to align your organization, to help create the overall purpose of the own company and how it impacts all the stakeholders as well? I think it's a, it's a wonderful question. And it's something I struggled with before starting We First, my company. And, and I had an epiphany. I was driving through uh, Hollywood one day and I was like, here's how I explained it to myself. We've all heard of this idea of the gift of life. I always assume the gift of life is given to us. I now realize the gift of life is something we each have to pass on to somebody else. It's the same idea of a gift, but it wasn't for us. It's a gift to pass on to somebody else. Mm. And so how do you, you know, I want to build on your definition of good here. I think that was wonderfully put. I also think that doing good is about activating what's innate within us and the natural world. And what I mean by that is I don't think our natural disposition as human beings is to, you know, really just succeed at each other's expense and let the whole community fall apart. I think we come into this world empathetic and chemically connected and hardwired to be part of a community, look after each other, nurturing and so on. I also think the natural world by definition is regenerative. And it's all about you know, being as abundant as it possibly can by symbiosis, you know, symbiosis between all the different elements within it and humanity. So I do think doing good is actually also leaning into those innate capacities within people and the planet to provide for everyone. Mm. When to your question about you know, what does it mean to be good as a company, I think, you know, I would answer it by saying, what is your point of departure? Is your point of departure in terms of what success looks like yourself, your bottom line, the dividends you pay to shareholders? Hmm. Or is it what you do that is additive to the well-being of the whole? And one of the most powerful things about the virtuous spiral that I explain in my book 
is that not only as you work up the spiral do you compound you know, the positive impact that you're having, but as you know with spirals, things also wind their way down. The benefits wind their way down all the way back down to you who's made the conscious decision to participate. Uh, what does that mean for a CEO? A CEO defines their purpose, defines their values, enlists all their stakeholders to that end, contributes to their community, transforms their industry, shapes culture at large, and all of those efforts benefit the company. Hmm. Employees stay there longer. They build their reputation. They mitigate risks. They innovate in ways that are going to be relevant, resonant with the world. And so to your question, doing good is ultimately self-serving because we're in a marketplace that rewards companies uh, for doing so. And so it's counterintuitive. Ultimately, the most selfish thing you can do is take care of everybody else because you're securing your own well-being in the process. So it's interesting you bring this up because we're going through a process like this, and I explained a little bit about it before the show. We're about to go into our, we call it our team retreat. It's once a year, it's annual, in person, as we all work virtually. How do you recommend leaders of organizations articulate this new these new values, this new vision, this new purpose to create this alignment in order to get one more step up the spiral? You know, articulating that purpose outright is important, but doing it when you go to a retreat and, you know, sharing it is equally important. I'm going to say, share a number of different things. The good news is, and we've been doing this work for 10 years with Tom's and Timberland and so many other brands. So this is based on real world experience. The good news is it's not something new. It's not something outside yourself. You don't have to invent something that's out there that you haven't thought of yet. It's innate within the organization. The sculpture is within the marble. You just need to reveal the sculpture by chipping away at the marble. And that's a process. In our work, and many others who do great work out there, there is a number of questions we ask. Why? Because it's hard to read the label from inside the jar. You're in the daily swim of your business. You've got supply chain issues, especially during COVID. You've got a churn of talent. You can't find employees, competitors. You don't know what they're doing. The industry is upside down. You can't even see straight. Mm. So you've got to externalize yourself, get outside of yourself so you can see how you want to represent your purpose to others. And you do that through a series of questions. Here are three questions that are key to that. First is, and this is what we use in our work, what is your enemy? And by that, I mean not someone you want to destroy. I mean, what is that issue you exist to solve? You know, with Airbnb, it was the homogenous hotel experience. But more than that, the consequence of that experience was you don't really belong anywhere. You might as well be in a hotel room anywhere in the world when you're in these homogenous hotel rooms. So what is their whole platform built around? Universal belonging. What is their purpose? To, to create a world where anyone can belong anywhere. For me at WeFirst, our enemy is the me first mentality that not only compromised, you know, the hopes, health care and, and, you know, housing of so many people around the world in 2008, but it's self-destructive for business more broadly. So what is that enemy? Hmm. Secondly, what are you the only of? There's only one Kevin. There's only one real leaders team. There's only one moment like this. There's only one platform like yours. There's only one audience like this listening to you. What are you the only of? And then thirdly, when you're at your best, what are you doing? 
when you and the team at Real Leaders are crushing it and you are just high-fiving each other, if you're a solopreneur, you go and high-five yourself in the mirror in the bathroom and hope that no one sees you, what are you doing? When you ask these questions and more, you start to externalize yourself and you start to see themes emerge in your answers. And the way that I came upon this was I started blogging even before I wrote We First, before there was a company or anything. And I started to go, oh, wow, I just wanted to write about anything I cared about. And I constantly sort of saw this issue of sort of fairness and fairness in business and what's wrong with business and what, what cost is it coming and so on and so on. And then I was really interrogated the language because you have to make it very short and sweet and shareable. And I distilled it down to the problem is me first and the solution is we first. And so for you, anyone who is trying to distill this down and share it when you go to a retreat is you do that work to define it. And then you share it with everyone inside your organization, but you don't just share it in a prescriptive way. You talk them through the logic that got you there. Hopefully you've had their input on the way from the employees or the, you know, the team members. And then you create an ideation session with them where you start to brainstorm how that could, bring, how could, that could be brought to life. What could real, if your purpose at Real Leaders is X, what could you do for your members? What could you do with the Impact Collaborative? What could you do with other organizations like yours? What could you do to go to the root problem of business, provide systemic solutions that can scale? So it's a springboard. So if you want to drive buy-in, define it in the first place, informed by all your different stakeholders, share it with them, not in a prescriptive way, but in a sort of inclusive way, and then ideate with them for how to bring it to life. And what is a way to make sure you're meeting your goals, make sure you're measuring your success, making sure that the employees are galvanized by this new vision, this new purpose, this, this rebirth of your organization? What advice do you have in terms of holding people accountable? Yeah, that's a great question because we work with lots of global enterprises that have 50, 100,000, 200,000 employees, right. and it gets complicated. And typically, here's the biggest mistake that everyone makes. They map across the same mentality from their supply chain or org structure, which is top down. You know, we're just going to tell everyone our purpose. Mm. Why is that a problem? If you're an enterprise with a portfolio of brands, it feels prescriptive. It shuts you down. It tells you what to think, do, or be. And here's the way to fix it. Turn that triangle upside down and see your purpose as a foundational platform on which everybody, stand, everybody stands, whether it's your port, your port codes, your portfolio companies, you know the companies you invest in, whether it's your employees, whatever it might be, build from the bottom up. Mm. And then if you really want to share that effectively within your culture, you've got to make sure on the strength of this sort of um, ideation that I talked about, where you inspire people to really kind of think how it could be brought to life, you've got to get to the point where they see what it means to them personally, and how it informs their daily role. Mm. Whether you're in payroll, whether you're a supplier, whether you're a sales guy, whether you're an R&D, you have to have a purpose where they go, huh, I like that. I think it's meaningful. It resonates with me. I see what we're doing, and I really identify my role within it. And that's when everybody starts to add value to your company, and that's when your purpose takes on a life of its own. So is that in the company stage or is that in the community stage? That's in the company stage. And I, I appreciate you pointing back to that. The first stage is you as an individual saying, I choose to lead, to lead in my life by the choices I make, what companies I work for, what 
companies I invest in, what products I buy. Go up a notch, you've got the culture within an organization, you've got leadership and its values and purpose and sharing it, and that's what we've been talking about. The next level above that is community architecture. And that's what we call what others refer to as marketing. But the problem with marketing is, as someone who's been a marketer for 20, 35, or 25, 30 years, is it's implicit that it's almost you're broadcasting at people, you're telling them what to think, do, or buy, and all the research says no one wants that. The way we look at it is in this third level is community architecture, which simply put means you recognize that your customers, your consumers co-own the brand. Secondly, they co-author your purpose, your brand story, how you go to market. And how do they do that? They co-create the content with you. You see all these campaigns now where brands work with consumers. And then fourthly, you collaborate with partners to help scale and your reach and resonance. And let me give you an example of how you co-create. Dove, the soap brand, you know they had a campaign in the last couple of years called Show Us. And what's their purpose? Their purpose is to make beauty a source of confidence and not anxiety. So how do they go about that co-creating with their customers? They go out there and they ask women around the world to share a real photo of them, real women, unretouched, to create a free stock library that advertisers can use. Why? Because they want to make confidence a source. They want to make beauty a source of confidence, not anxiety, mm. to treat the issue of the sexualization and objectification of women. So they're actually not doing marketing. They're not doing advertising. They are co-creating, co-owning the brand, co you know, collaborating with their customer base to provide a solution to the problem. And what does that lead to? Everyone's much more engaged. Everyone thinks they're much more authentic. They're solving for a real social issue that is meaningful to them on a personal level. And because it's about them, they share it more and they build the business with them. Would innovation have to be one of those core values for a company like that? I mean, that's just such a unique idea. Whoever came up with that and the leadership has to be ready to embrace and be open-minded for that. What, what type of core values would lead to a culture that accepts new ideas as big as something like that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. The, the cultural piece is huge and it's determined by leadership. So, you know, the hierarchical approach to running a company is, is, is problematic for many reasons, especially during COVID and hybrid work and all these different things. But outright, if you don't set the example, if leadership doesn't serve as a permission slip for people to prioritize purpose, it'll never happen. So that's the first thing. You put, leadership has to come out and say that we are committed to this and it will drive our profits, but it's equally important as profit. Then once you have that, I wouldn't call innovation a value. Values are, you know, what dictates how you behave. And they're more in the form of, you know, the, the community impact you have or the integrity with which you act and so on and so on. But innovation is an output of purpose. It's an innovation driver. And I'll give you an example. If you want to solve for the climate crisis and carbon in the air, you look to industrial agriculture and you know, the impact of livestock around the world. And so as an innovation driver, you're seeing companies out there that like Bolt Threads and others that are really looking to solve for those issues by launching new companies that are more responsible to the planet and don't compound the problem. I'll give you an example. I spoke to the CEO the other day and you know they have decoded the DNA of spiderwebs. 
And you know how spider webs are really cool? You grab a spider web and you pull it out and you go ding and it goes back into place. He was sharing with me that there are six different spider types of spider webs inside spiders. Some spider web hold those main kind of arc right, vectors right, right. to hold it together. Mm -hmm. Some of them can you know, extend up to six or seven times. Anyway, the point is this, they've decoded that and they've created thread based on that DNA, and they're doing partnerships with Stella McCartney and Adidas, leveraging nature's incredible wisdom and intelligence through evolution, you know, to the benefit of the company. And at the same time, they're looking to mycelium, you know, the network underneath the ground, Fungi. whose flowers are mushrooms, mm -hmm. you know, to make a substitute for leather. So what this company is doing is driving innovation on the strength of their purpose, which is to address the climate emergency and coming up with solutions that really position partners like Adidas or Stella McCartney to be more resonant and relevant in the marketplace, mm. and that in turn builds their business. So just trying to give a concrete example there. Fascinating, and, and let's, for our audience, break down what you mean by core values. I gave you innovation, you said, no, 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 that's probably not one, whereas I th originally thought core values would be something to describe your company and the people in it. What do you mean by core values yeah. specifically? So I'll draw some distinctions here, which are important because it's easy to get kind of these things to get messed up. You know, your purpose is why you exist as a company. Your mission is what you would do to achieve that purpose. Your vision is that end state you're driving towards, the flag on the hill. When you're normally doing strategy work within that, you look at defining what is really the personality of a company. And there are two components. One is your voice and one is your values. Your voice, we define attributes for the voice of a company so they know how to speak. I mean, look at Oatly out there. Oatly's got this really irreverent brand voice out there, you know, or, and also you look at the, the values and your values really are how you behave. And so, yes, you can look at the category of innovation and create a value in and around that, which is always, for example, you know, always challenge um, convention or pre-existing conditions. Or, uh, so you can lean into innovation as a topic, you know, that you really want to kind of lean into as a value for the company, but innovation outright is a practice. You know, every company needs to be innovative in some way, but if, you know, one of your core values is that you want to constantly keep challenging yourself to come up with new products and services and, and ways to go to market, you can build that into the mindset, into the values of the company. But I wouldn't say innovation itself is a value. Mm. and you know, so when you put all these pieces together, you might say as a young company, you're a founder, you might say, what's all this strategy goobly gook for? Well, the reality is this. When you get to a certain scale and you don't have a founder telling everyone on a daily basis what a company is about, things start to break down. You hire new people. They're not, you know, mentoring internally. People are caught up in the churn of the business on a daily basis and you can't scale the clarity of your brand. So all of this work, purpose, positioning, voice, value, your brand story, your tagline, you know, all of these things set in stone your brand, which is how the company goes to market. And that's why it's so important. Another one just to add on, if you have those core values, you know, you can use that for your interview process as well. You definitely want people that are going to be attracted or come to your company with the same values. I, I think interviews, as I've heard from a lot of CEOs, the shoe's on the other foot now. They come in now, especially young folks, and they're like, so tell me about your values and what do you stand for? And why should I work here? 
and, and I want to play a meaningful role in the world. So how are you going to equip me to do that? And what's your growth strategy, personal growth strategy for me to do that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Younger demos, millennials, Gen Z, even Gen A, which is coming through, I mean, they're looking at the world through a values-based lens. They know their future is compromised. They are looking squarely at business as being partly responsible. And they really want to look at the investment of their time. Is it going to move the needle forward in a way that's going to improve their future? And so um, sometimes it's hard for old people with gray hair like me. You sort of sit there in an interview and you go, wow, <laughs> wow. wasn't like that when I was young. You're just lucky to have a job, right? Exactly. I think you made a very interesting point early on this show about starting at the point of departure. Could you explain what you mean by that for the actual leader themselves and how that correlates with transcendence? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think most people, now I'm generalizing here, but the big problem with business and largely most stakeholders, we've been looking through the wrong end of the telescope. You know, we've been thinking about ourselves and looking out to the world. Narrow into the telescope, looking out to the world. I get it. <laughs> wow, we need to nice. spin it around. We need to spin it around and go, here is the reality of our world. What role can I play in that context? And most CEOs, under pressure from their investors, under pressure from their board, under pressure from Wall Street, are constantly being pulled to look at it from a me-first lens. Mm. Quarterly reporting. You know, what are the dividends to shareholders? You know, are they in HBR's ranking for the best CEO or whatever it might be? When instead, you need to, you can, and you hear this in the dialogue around business everywhere now, you need to shift to a longer term perspective rather than what they you know, call short termism. Because basically, the longer we pursue this approach of short termism, the more we're compromising the planet on which we depend, the societies in which we need to thrive, and our reputation ultimately and increasingly our ability to attract the talent we want and inspire purchases from conscious consumers who are looking to business to be a force for good. Why? Because they hear about what trouble we're in every day in the news. And so we really need to realign our point of departure from the end state we want to create, which is thriving societies, a thriving planet in which all stakeholders can benefit. And that's the best container for your company. I think it's so important because leadership doesn't get easier. It's going to continue to get harder and harder and harder. And what I think the mark of a good leader is, is someone who can leave something better than they found it, as well as if you were to lead the organization today, would it be able to sustain itself? And if you've done that, you started at the point of departure, that means you're a good leader. That means you probably, you probably found it out. You figured it out. You got it right. Are you able, are you even, is it possible to even think like that if you haven't started with yourself, if you haven't identified your purpose within your organization, if you haven't involved your, your company, your employees, your, your community, your suppliers? Like, is it possible to even, I guess, be a good leader if you haven't started? With yourself you know that is an incredibly profound question i do believe that for a company purpose is an inside job you can't just manage the optics and do a campaign out there but that's equally true on an individual level mm. if you're a ceo you're a founder if you're in the c-suite if you're an executive you need to do the work and one of the great challenges about this sort of re-engineering of business 
is inspiring CEOs to do it for real. And in our work and in all you know, the travels and discussions that I have, there's a broad spectrum between those for whom purpose is just an expression of who they are. It's not what they do. It is who they are. Through to those who need, they know, know they need to do it and they're kind of wrapping their head around ESG and purpose and B Corp and sustainable development goals. And then there are those at the other end, you know, who are really like, okay, we're going to kind of put some, you know, lipstick on CSR or cause marketing that we've been doing and think we've ticked the box. There's the full spectrum. And I think to your question, what determines where you are on that spectrum is how much work you've done on yourself. Mm. And one of the most powerful positions you can be in is to say, you know, I can allow my whole human being to show up. I'm not just the guy in the boardroom. I'm not the guy in the annual report. I'm not the name in the press release, but I'm a dad, I'm a father, I'm a man, I'm a brother, and I'm a citizen of this world, an inhabitant of this planet, and I care. Like if you ask me, why do I care about this? And from the natural world, I grew, in, grew up in the water in Sydney. I'm a poor surfer who talks a good game, as you know, and I am gutted by what's happening to our oceans because that's where I'm happiest. Yeah, I'm gutted. Same. Like it really upsets me. And I am more appreciative today getting in the water and seeing the ocean and watching a sunset than ever. What's it for you? If you're a CEO, if you're a founder, what is that thing? This is, goes back to what is your enemy? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Mm. I don't think anyone started a company just because and like damn the consequences. They all do it to answer a need or they have an instinct for a role they can play. And so I would say that we've all got to kind of do the work, as you say. And I think you, you're noticing that there's a lot of dialogue now. I mean, you see Brene Brown around vulnerability being strength and so many other kind of thought leaders out there talking about what it means to lead. And back to your question, I think that was really well put. I also think, and others have said this, not me, that you know, to be a leader is to be somebody that others want to follow. But I really think that today, given the circumstances we're in, it is more akin to if, you're, if you want to be a leader, you've really got to be someone that builds leaders who can go out mm. into the world and create that next generation, that next tier of people who independently can go out and change the world themselves. It was an interesting time in 2020. We saw a revolution and an uprise for people that wanted to redo the system that got them in this place to begin with. How do you as a leader, and you even mentioned investors, let's say, how yeah. do you make sure that you're not contributing to the cycle that got us here in the first place? Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. And, and there's a few things I want to call out. What's working against us? Because there's a lot of forces working against what I'm saying, mm -hmm. which is why I mentioned stakes, stakeholders, and story. That's why I think it can work now with a coalition of stakeholders. Mm -hmm. But there are legacy brands and industries out there that don't want us to succeed because they're making a hell of a lot of money with the way things are. And they're not going to go down without a fight. Secondly, there are, you know, a rising middle class in countries all around the world that really want to have their day at the banquet table of capitalism. They want their iPads, they want their cars, they want their this or that, that certain countries in the world have enjoyed. And there's a real appetite for that. And then sadly, there's the, the vast majority and growing majority of people who are just fighting to survive. So they didn't even have the luxury of thinking about fixing the world. So that's, that's working against us. That's really, really hard. But with that in mind, you have to, you have to accept your own agency, the own, your own potential to play a role in change. 
you have to accept the fact that it's not going to happen without your participation. So much like democracy, which is most powerful when everyone participates, we've got to be more intentional in our role in capitalism rather than enjoy the spoils and you know, leave the consequences to everybody else. When you think about investing, Simon, and you think about two sides of the coin, do you work for money or does money work for you? And investors, money works for you. Investing right now, someone even said today on our call uh, before this was a lot of investors and just the system itself is racist. You know, a lot of people that need money aren't getting it. A lot of people that need the, the loans uh, to, to build wealth in this nation are not receiving those loans. How does something as big as that change in order to create a world that's a little bit more equitable? There are a lot of organizations working towards this. You're right. You know, not only is racism systemic, one of the ways it comes to life is through access to capital and all those tools and vehicles and levers you can use to actually lift yourself and the next generation out of a cycle of poverty or, you know, living in underserved communities and so on. And there are organizations like Common Future that have received grants from, you know, McKenzie and, and, and other sort of, you know, very wealthy people and philanthropists out there. So there are organizations taking this head on. But, you know, I think the truth is this. I think for a long time, racism has been self-serving. Women have been marginalized, people of color, uh, multicultural um, communities have been marginalized because it effectively limited the talent pool. And it really sequestered the spoils in the hands of a minority of people who have a disproportionate amount of wealth. And as a privileged white person, I would include myself in that category. And I think one of the most powerful things about Black Lives Matter, it is thrown into stark relief. The, just the, the persistence, pervasiveness, depth of this issue. And I think that it, it raised the alarm at a sufficient level to really put everybody on notice mm. and to make them really recognize that not only are there are, are people treated more equitably by doing so, there is enormous upside to communities, to society, to companies when they are not only diverse, but truly inclusive. So you need to redistribute the capital. I think Common Future has distributed or redirected around $250 million you know, during its time to uh, entrepreneurs and communities of color. And we're seeing a growing number of philanthropists invest their money that way. Mm. But you know, there needs to be a sober recognition that everyone benefits. And this idea of holding on to the wealth at the cost of others ultimately comes at the cost of ourselves. And I really hope that this watershed moment since the Black Lives Matter movement, the murder of George Floyd, George Floyd and more, is going to lead to not only lasting, but significant change. And we're seeing some leaders, uh, I wouldn't say step up, but taking a proactive stance and not forgetting what had happened in 2020, uh, whether it's at the, the government level with uh, taking away standardized testing uh, to help out people from impoverished or underserved communities uh, have access to more opportunities, because that does not define you. One test does not define you. Um, and there's all, obviously different viewpoints of that, and, but that's just one example of many. Um, what I'm and, and I, come, yeah. I want to come back to the point you made on sure. DNI, diversity and inclusion. There was a big article just even a couple of days ago about how $50 billion was committed by corporations in America as an aggregate towards DNI um, commitments um, 
in the in the wake of George Floyd's murder, but the vast majority of those funds have ultimately been invested in self-serving practices. Hmm. And so accountability, it's not only the intention, the awareness and the intention, it's accountability for what you're doing. So, yeah. And I also want to make sure that people know we're talking about for-profit businesses here. We're talking about capitalism. In capitalism, there's really three factors in it to grow your business. So I want to ask you how this virtuous spiral can raise, let's say, the, the cap rate of a company. How has it raised the selling price of a company and contribute to, let's say, your net operating income? How can a, a vision, alignment, leadership in the organization right. galvanize the company to either reduce costs or increase their margins? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. And, the, and the, the, my answer would be this. The good news is that being more purposeful has shifted from being a cost center to being a profit center. And all that means is the market forces are rewarding companies for doing so. And what does that mean? It means that there's a consumer expectation for more good for you, good for the planet products. But now investors and private equity and venture firms are putting money behind companies making those. So those companies can grow and answer that consumer demand. And what happens? The big companies out there that have a stranglehold on industries suddenly lose half a point or a point or two points of their market share to these younger companies that are answering that demand. They start engineering what they're doing. And slowly you start to see the market forces reward more companies, large and small, for doing more good that really does benefit people and the planet. And you know how does this build the bottom line? There are several elements to the ROI for a company of being purposeful. Yeah, yeah. Risk mitigation. You know, you're not going to get pillared in public for being a company that doesn't care. There is reputation enhancement. You know, you build your reputation in the eyes of competitors. There is, you know, winning the talent wars, being able to attract the talent you want and keep them. There is building a culture of purpose, which is so important right now to build a resilient culture, especially during COVID. There is actually not just product development, but product innovation. You actually are inspired to make products that the marketplace is going to re reward. And then there, of course, are there are marketing benefits. Conscious consumers want to collaborate with brands that are doing good. And then there are actually the impact benefits where you contribute to your community or causes or issues that show that you're walking your talk. And so each one of those are not some idea in the do good world. They are a bottom line impact in terms of the, of the, of the, the profit, the net profit of a company. Reputation, risk mitigation, employee retention, product innovation, you know, marketing and, you know, the, the, the difference that you're making out in the communities which you serve. And so the ROI of purpose is very, very clear and it's becoming increasingly important. And I'll make one more comment on that, which is here's what I see coming. Out there in the future, there is a hockey stick. Out there in the future, the problems we face, ocean acidification, biodiversity, climate emergency are compounding. And they're coming back towards us in the present. And pretty soon, the luxury of choice we have right now as to how far we change and how fast we change is going to be ripped out of our hands. The same way you've seen in the last 18 months, companies re-engineer how they're showing up in the world through ESG and CS um, um, and DNI, all of these different ways, fair and living wage. They have so much scrutiny on business in the last 18 months. And as the issues get more acute, that hockey stick of expectation is going to get steeper and steeper and steeper. And those companies that lean into their purpose will be better positioned to capture those market forces and have the wave push them forward, and they'll be the ones that benefit. 
Here's what this is the scariest thing to me. And you mentioned your enemy was me first, but I also think your enemy is the CEO or the organization that just wants to check a box that doesn't, you know, shed their skin like a snake and start all over again with this rebirth of their organization. Patagonia, they say, only if it's core to your brand do you make these changes. Only if it's core to who you are can you do something like this and effectively pull this off. If you were trying to check a box and buy carbon credits just to check a box and do all these different things and marketing just to check a box, it will not work. That's why I think this book is so important. If you do not start with yourself, your leaders, your company, your community, society, you're not going to be able to transcend. Is that a fair assessment? That's an absolutely fair assessment. And just look at the, the use cases out there in the marketplace. Look at what happened with Wells Fargo, with the fraudulent accounts that were set up. Look at what happened with VW and the diesel emissions scandal. Look at what happened with Pepsi and the Kendall Jenner, you know, scandal, well, you know, hijacking of the Black Lives Matter movement. Whether it's the CEO, whether it's the board, whether it's the company more broadly, or whether it's an individual product, everyone is being exposed, not just by the media and not just by consumers, but by their own employees. Look at what happened to Google and to Facebook and to Amazon around bias against women and pay scales and climate commitments. These are your own employees inside the company exposing what you're doing. There is nowhere to hide. If you are trying to play at this and manage the optics, you're going to get what you deserve. And it, you've seen the consequences of that in the marketplace time and time again. Simon, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Where can people find more information about your book? I would so appreciate if people would take the time to look at, go, go to leadwithwe.com and you can see where you can buy the book. Or you can also just go to amazon.com and put in lead with we and my name, Simon Mannering, it'll be there. It's up for pre-order right now. And it is a step-by-step -step roadmap that gives you the big picture, but also the very concrete actions you can take within your company as a CEO, as a founder, building your culture, that community architecture, so that you can be part of the solution and drive your growth as a result. So I'd invite you to check it out, leadwithwe.com. And just really appreciate um, sharing a bit about it today, Kevin. You know, I learned a lot today. You know, I always learn something new from you. But, you know, you read kind of a summary of the book. But it's great to have someone actually articulate it. And I think if I'm going to leave a viewer or a listener with a message, I think it is, you know, if you're going to do this, if you're going to be a force for good. Make sure you do it right. Make sure you don't just check a box and make one little decision that's not going to benefit you in the long run. If you want to start, buy this book, read it, go through it and join this collective movement of leaders who have figured it out. Simon, it's been a pleasure speaking to you today. Thanks for tuning in, folks, and always keep it real. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, everyone. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched 
our new Reelers membership. If you want to get access to all of Reelers Magazine, private member-only events, and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off a $100 a year subscription. Hit the link in the show notes, enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive access to all of Real Leaders to get you to the next level. Thanks for listening to this episode, and always keep it real.